Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. So I am working to get back onto a more regular release schedule. Hopefully I can release one episode every third or fourth Thursday morning, but we shall see. Life keeps getting in the way. So for today's episode, I want to talk about the connection between your gut and your brain. Have you ever thought about why the earliest feelings of love make you feel like you have butterflies in your stomach? or why you might need to pee or poop more frequently right below a really stressful anxiety-inducing test. Curious? Let's figure out how and why our guts and our brains are so closely linked. I want to start out by talking about anatomy and the physical connections between our digestive systems and our brains. I always thought that our stomachs contained little more than acid and the leftovers of lunch, but as it turns out, your gut contains an unexpected secret a quote, second brain, which can operate quasi-autonomously from your actual central head brain. Discovered in the middle of the 19th century, this little brain is called the enteric nervous system, or the ENS, and is made up of two layers of more than 100 million nerve cells lining your gastrointestinal tract from your esophagus to your rectum. The ENS is responsible for determining the movement of your gastrointestinal tract, regulating the release of gastric acid, changing local blood flow, determining the release of gut hormones, and interacting with the immune system in the gut. The neurons in the ENS are characterized into two groups called ganglia. The myenteric ganglia are organized in a network around the gut, from the upper esophagus, so starting in your throat, and then going all the way down to the internal anal sphincter, which is the muscle that wraps around your anal canal. These neurons are mostly motor neurons, and they are responsible for coordinating peristalsis, which is the rhythmic muscle contractions that help move food down through your digestive tract. The second group of neurons are the submucosal ganglia, and they are primarily located in the small and large intestine, and they are made up of primary afferent sensory neurons. These bad boys are responsible for detecting chemical and mechanical stimuli from ingestion, and they use that information to control secretion, absorption, and certain muscle movements. I've also come across different terminology, especially or specifically that the ENS consists of two plexuses, the submucosal and the myenteric. From my understanding, plexus simply means the local circuitry of neurons, Also, the submucosal plexus is also known as Meissner's plexus, and the myenteric plexus is also known as uh, Auerbach's plexus. Just wanted you guys to be aware if you come across different terminology. Now, this enteric nervous system can communicate with the central nervous system via the main signaling method of your parasympathetic nervous system, the vagus nerve. This is the 10th of your 12 cranial nerves. Each cranial nerve is responsible for connecting your brain with some aspect of sensing the world. For example, the first cranial nerve contains olfactory information. The third has the ability to move and blink your eyes. The seven guides guides your facial expressions and your sense of taste and more. Now, the vagus nerve is responsible for modulating a bunch of functions. Your digestion, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your respiration, your immune system responses, mood, mucus and saliva productions, speech, taste, and urination. What doesn't it do? (laughs) 
<laughs> the 10th cranial nerve extends from its origin in the brainstem, specifically the medulla oblongata, through the nerves in the neck and the thorax down to the abdomen. In the neck, the vagus nerve provides innervation to most of the muscles of the pharynx and the larynx. And these are the parts of your throat that produce different sounds. As it travels down past your heart, the vagus nerve provides the main parasympathetic supply to the heart and stimulates a reduction in heart rate. Fascinatingly enough, because of this long winding path through the body, the vagus nerve is also called the wandering nerve. Hence the root being the Latin vagar, meaning to wander, and sounding vaguely similar to vagabond or vague. It is important to note that the brain communicates to the gut via several parallel pathways beyond the vagus nerve. I won't cover them all today, but I did link a Nature Reviews paper. It's called Gut Feeling, the Emerging Biology of Gut-Brain Communication by Mayer that dives really deeply into this topic. However, one of the most important parallel pathways is the HPA, or the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal pathway, which is considered the core stress efferent axis that coordinates the adaptive responses of the organism, of you, to stressors of any kind. The HPA axis is part of the limbic system, a part of the brain that mediates memory and emotional responses. So now that we know a little bit more about how information is conveyed between the brain and the digestive system, let's talk about the impact of your emotions or your stress on the gut. I'm sure that you have at some point described something as devastating or gut-wrenching, or maybe noticed that a particularly anxious mindset results in an upset stomach. So how does this happen? One example is that when you experience an environmental stressor, whether it's an exam or a bad breakup or something else that is causing you anxiety, it activates that HPA access by secreting corticotropin releasing factor, or CRF, from a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which then stimulates adrenocorticotropic hormone secretion from the pituitary gland, and that in turn leads to the release of cortisol from the adrenal glands. Cortisol has intestinal targets. When you have high cortisol, it can result in inflammation of the digestive tract, which can throw off the balance between the, quote, good and, quote, bad bacteria which live in your digestive system. Additionally, stress-induced cortisol has been shown to increase intestinal barrier dysfunction. Your intestinal barrier is critical for the normal homeostasis of the gut, and it's defined as a semi-permeable structure that allows for the uptake of essential nutrients and immune sensing, while simultaneously keeping out molecules and bacteria that could disrupt your health. If you mess up the intestinal barrier, bacterial metabolites and even bacteria themselves can leap into the submucosa and into systemic circulation, a phenomenon that is called leaky gut syndrome which ultimately messes up your general health. Also, a little side tangent. Um, a study by Zoppi et al. showed that the degree of intestinal permeability is regulated by the intestinal endocannabinoid system, specifically cannabidiol and tetrahydrocannabidiol, which if I remember correctly is THC. These are protective against intestinal permeability, suggesting that cannabinoids or products that are found in weed could play a really important role in treating inflammatory gastrointestinal diseases. Kind of cool, right? So it has also been shown that environmental stressors can affect the makeup of your gut's microbiota, 
The community of microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, archaea, and fungi that reside inside of your gastrointestinal tract. It turns out that bacterial species are key in regulating the production of neurotransmitters, as well as their precursors. Moreover, bacteria can secrete and upregulate essential proteins and metabolites involved in neuropeptide and gut hormone release. So quite a bit of work has been conducted in characterizing the makeup of your microbiome. From our childhood, when our microbiome depends on our mom's milk, and how it changes with increased diversity in our diet into adulthood. As adults, our microbiomes are dominated by the bacteriodetes and the firmicutes phyla. In addition, while genetic diversity varied diets, individual differences mean that researchers cannot define what a normal microbiome looks like, they have been able to characterize three enterotypes. The enterotypes differ by which species dominates your microbiome bacterial composition. So it depends on whether it's the bacteriodetes, the prevotella, or the ruminococcus species. This, in turn, is affected by one's diet. So people in the Prevotella species enterotype generally consume diets that are high in carbohydrates, whereas the Bacteriodetes species enterotype means that one is consuming um, high amounts of protein. This kind of vaguely reminded me of a BuzzFeed quiz, if I'm going to be honest. The gut microbiome is constantly evolving as well in adulthood, and it can be affected by changes in the diet and your general well-being. One really interesting area of research is the gut health of individuals suffering from depression. So in 2022, there was a pretty groundbreaking study in this area. It was the largest analysis of depression symptoms correlated with gut microbiomes to date. Uh, Najaf, I'm going to butcher this and I'm very sorry, but Najaf Amin and other researchers over at Oxford University analyzed a truly enormous amount of data, including the fecal samples of over a thousand individuals looking at their gut microbiomes. Those same individuals also provided a self-report of depressive symptoms. So the researchers sorted through the data and they found that 16 types of bacteria could be classified as important predictors of depressive symptoms, but to varying degrees. So one example was that a depletion of Eubacterium ventriosum was correlated with depression. And fascinatingly enough, that same depletion has been found in studies of traumatic brain injury and obesity, which are also correlated with depression. Another important finding was that the abundance of one bacteria, uh, Egerthella, similarly correlated with depressive symptoms. And it is important to note that while this is a correlation and not a causation study, meaning that the researchers have been able to show that these occur simultaneously in the same individuals, but the real mechanisms haven't quite been worked out yet. But it does point us in the direction that our gut makeup and potentially how we feed ourselves might affect our mindset and our mental well-being. As you've probably gathered, the GBA, the gut-brain access, is a two-way street. Much Much like how we talked about how your emotions and your stress can affect the workings of your gut, your gut and the microbiome inside of it could affect your emotions and brain. If you remember how I said that 2022 study had shown correlation but not causation, well, here are a few possible mechanisms of how the gut might be able to affect the brain. The primary way that microbiota may interact with the gut-brain access is by modulating the intestinal barrier, but it can also do so by modulating afferent sensory neurons. 
Furthermore, microbiota can influence the activity of the enteric nervous system by producing molecules that can act as local neurotransmitters, such as GABA, serotonin, melatonin, histamine, and acetylcholine, or by generating a biologically active form of catecholamines in the lumen of the gut. The enteric nervous system is also the target of bacterial metabolites. One of the main products of bacterial metabolism is short-chain fatty acids, or SCFAs, such as butyric acid, propionic acid, and acetic acid. These are capable of stimulating the sympathetic nervous system, mucosal serotonin release, and potentially influencing memory and the learning process. So this last point was shown in a study where mice were fed a diet of 50% lean ground beef in conjunction with chow pellets, and they found that these mice had greater gut bacteria diversity than rodents that were just receiving the standard chow pellets. The ground beef fed mice had increased physical activity, better reference memory, and presented with a lot less anxiety-like behavior. Again, mechanism unknown, the study shows correlation and not causation. Also, there is just something fundamentally wrong about making a mouse eat cow. But this two-way street of the gut-brain axis is only more exemplified by the fact that there is a strong link between individuals suffering from gastrointestinal issues, such as IBS, or irritable bowel syndrome, and depression and anxiety. One paper that I found stated that the co-occurrence is 44 to 84%, which is A, a huge degree of variation, and B, kind of wild to think about. Although, I guess if your stomach hurts all the time, I'm not terribly confused as to why you feel sad. Anyway, that same paper sought to compare the gut microbiota of individuals with IBS and those with anxiety and depression, and found that they shared uh, lower alpha diversity than control individuals. Machine learning, ooh, buzzword, was in fact able to distinguish between IBS participants with and without anxiety and and depression uh, based on their gut microbiota, which is really cool. So the strong correlation between gastrointestinal issues and mental health has led to the development of gut-targeted treatments for depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders. The most common ones, probiotics and prebiotics. So I had no idea what the difference is between the two. So obviously I looked it up. That's my job. Um, Probiotics are foods or supplements that contain live microorganisms that are intended to maintain or improve the good bacteria in your gut. In contrast, prebiotics are food, typically high fiber foods, that act as fuel for the beneficial bacteria in our digestive systems. Examples of probiotics are fermented foods like kimchi, sauerkraut, kombucha, the fun little tiny yogurts from the Japanese supermarket. I always forget what they're called, and I'm gonna Google it. They're called Yakult. Um, Examples of prebiotics are bananas, onions, garlic, berries, beans, uh, asparagus, leeks, chicory root, and a lot more. A 2019 paper by Liu et al. conducted a meta-analysis of clinical trials that evaluated the effects of prebiotics and probiotics on depression and anxiety. They found that prebiotics did not differ from the administered placebo for depression or anxiety, so they had no effect, basically. However, probiotics yielded, quote, 
small, but statistically significant effects. In fact, I've read a number of papers that were some flavor of, you know, probiotics, are they going to do anything for depression? And almost all of them have come to the conclusion that this is a very exciting potential avenue for developing novel treatments for mental health disorders, but all of them have come up short of conclusively proving that it makes a difference. At the end of every study, there's a statement that says, we need more rigorous clinical trials to say whether or not this will actually help. Also, very important disclaimer, absolutely no one is recommending that you eat yogurt or sauerkraut instead of taking proven remedies like antidepressants for depression. That being said, scientists are really excited about this avenue of research. While it is relatively new and a lot of these studies are proving correlation, if not causation, it is an incredibly accessible field of work. We all have to eat, and food and diet is something that is pretty easy to modulate. So the idea that we can maybe help alleviate some mental health disorders by changing diet in combination with medications or therapy is super exciting. One fascinating but kind of gross way that people are going about this is actually not by changing their diets at all, but by undergoing fecal transplants, or FMT. So poop is collected from a healthy, carefully screened donor and then transplanted into an unhealthy individual's colon. In this way, it's possible to restore a healthy balance of bacteria in the lower intestine. Some preclinical evidence in germ-free rodents, which received fecal samples from patients with major depressive disorder, showed that these animals increased depressive-like behavior. So, logic says that theoretically, you can ameliorate or get rid of depressive symptoms by transplanting fecal matter from a healthy individual into a depressed individual. So, people did just that. I found this paper published very recently in 2022 by Dahl et al. from the University of Basel in Switzerland, where they did just that. Um, they initiated a randomized controlled trial testing the efficacy of oral frozen FMT capsules as therapy for patients with moderate to severe major depressive disorder. If you dissect that statement, what you get is that they are feeding depressed people frozen poop pills and hoping that it helps. (laughs) Um, Also, before I get into the results, I need you guys to know that while the study was running, the Food and Drug Administration released a safety alert about fecal microbiome transplantation and that they had to pause the study. Um, So it basically led to a very small sample size. It turns out that some of the patients uh, who were taking FMT had really severe adverse effects. I don't don't know what the actual effects were, but I read the supplementary materials and that's what the FDA statement said. Uh, But that was in a different study. And this study was using the same stool bank as the other study. And so they decided to just abort the study for the safety of the participants, which completely makes sense. But anyway, results. So they had two patients. Both seemed to tolerate the frozen FMT capsules well. For both patients, their depressive symptoms seemed to improve after four weeks of therapy but it is really, really hard to tell what is real and what isn't from a sample size of two. I've linked the study in the show notes if you want to read a little bit more about the specifics of how their depressive symptoms improved over time, and they also dive really deeply in what their gut microbiota looked like over those four weeks. 
But that is a short look at the connection between your brain and your gut. I had an incredibly fun time making this episode, in part because my coworkers have really strong opinions about the gut-brain axis, um, and we had a ton of fun conversations about it. They are more skeptical than most about these things, specifically citing the fact that it's really hard to say whether you can change your diet and have it actually affect your brain. But hey, this is research in progress. It's a really exciting area of research. But I hope that you enjoyed this episode and you learned something new. I definitely did. Um, I am going to try and make this a two-part episode or maybe even a three-part episode um, spread over many weeks because I realized at the end of writing this that I haven't even covered antibiotics and I really want to talk more about the endocannabinoid system. I've been trying to find a way to create an episode about weed, but I don't just want to be like, Weed is a thing, it affects your brain, here is how. I want to I want to have this have a kind of a different theme. So that might be my avenue in. As per usual, I have cited all of my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for any cool figures. I am definitely going to post one that is of the HPA access mechanism, because I think that's really uh, valuable to look at while you listen. So please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neurosciencemateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neurosciencemateurhour on Instagram. This podcast is available on every platform I could reasonably find except Pandora, so please recommend it to your friends and your loved ones. And if you are feeling so inclined to financially support my work, please buy me a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash neuroscience. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, contact me, and you might see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I'll see you again.